Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. Most of my career has been spent around loud people, all jostling to speak and demanding attention from the room. In fact, it wasn't until I started working with government departments and agencies that I met very impressive, successful people who spoke softly and were more inclined to listen than talk. My guest today is one of those people whose leadership is not loud, but it's very powerful. Gabrielle Trainer is a non-executive director and advisor with more than 25 years' experience on boards ranging from infrastructure, transport to sport, art, and the empowerment of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. In 2017, she was named an Officer of the Order of Australia. Gab is known as someone who is trusted and who gives good advice. Gab, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series. Firstly, just tell me a little bit about your career journey so far. Well, it's been quite serendipitous, really, Helen. I started out as a lawyer many years ago, but I got better. Sorry to all the lawyers who are listening. (laughs) Then I actually did law without the intention of practising, so I always wanted to be a journalist. And so I joined the Melbourne Herald when it was a very big newspaper selling 600,000 copies a day. And uh, it was great grounding for whatever else I've done, I think, because you needed to think quickly and think analytically. The law helped with that a bit too, but... um, uh, who, how, what, when, where, why, and I've always liked writing and loved that environment. In fact, some of the best friends that I still have are friends and colleagues from that era, way back when dinosaurs roamed the earth in about the 1980s. And from there, I worked in government. I was lucky enough to get a job that sort of combined my law and journalism backgrounds with Elizabeth Evatt, who was then running the fairly newly established family court in Sydney, and um, the court was looking for somebody who could talk to the community about this new creature, the family court, which combined social sciences, counselling, and the law to resolve family issues. So I did that for a while, and in fact, it was quite a torrid time because uh, it was the time of the family court bombings. But um, we got through all of that, particularly thanks to Elizabeth's great leadership. And from there, I was asked to go to Canberra to become the Director of Public Relations for the Attorney-General's Department, uh, which was in the same structure, the same governmental structure. So I did that for a few years. This is when Bob Hawke was Prime Minister and Lionel Bowen was the attorney. So um, I very much enjoyed being right in the thick of uh, political life in Canberra. And I've, of course, been interested in politics all my life, but that gave front row seats to what was, uh, what was going on in Canberra, and I really, really enjoyed that. And from there, then, um, oh, for various reasons, mainly romantic, I moved to Sydney and was with a large um, public relations consultancy for a few years, 
then set up with the guy who'd actually been the boss of that public relations company and we started our firm uh, doing quite interesting issues management, crisis management, corporate advice generally on everything from very big transactions to when very difficult things happened to corporations such as, you know, big industrial accidents or big pieces of litigation or anything that the board was really concerned about. So it was a great period of my life and I was able to combine all the background, I suppose, that I'd had. It happened, you know, as I said, with pure serendipity. This wasn't the result of a carefully laid out plan at all. But it was just a question of always, I think, trying to keep as many options open in my life as possible, not specialising in anything too early, but um, keeping the avenues ahead uh, for as long as possible. And uh, I'd had a parallel career dating back to the early 90s as a, as a board director. It was the time when I think a lot of uh, people were beginning to understand that women weren't represented as directors on, on boards of various things. So I started out, uh, as many people do, on the board of a not-for-profit agency and then gravitated to some state government instrumentalities and from there it's been a pretty continuous career as a director over, gosh, 30 years or so, maybe a bit more. Uh, So I've been really fortunate to work in public companies, private companies, a lot of government agencies across a number of jurisdictions and a lot of not-for-profit agencies. So I've been really blessed with a huge diversity of interest in my board career. What boards are you currently on and, and what do you look for when you say yes? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question because if you look at, I suppose, all the very different things I've done from sport to the arts to infrastructure and construction to transport, financial services, it, it is a very diverse group of boards that I've been involved with. I suppose one of my primary roles at the moment is that I'm Interim Chair of Infrastructure Australia, which is um, a real passion of mine. And I think that's what that's what you look for first. You look for something that you are really very interested in and really have a passion for. Not only that, though, you've got to look at something that you really think you can add some value at. It's all very well to be attracted to a, a proposition and to look at the alignment of not only your interests but values and culture in an organisation, I think that's really important. But you've got to know that you, you won't feel too daunted by it, even though there's always a learning curve, but you really think that you've got some expertise and wisdom and experience to contribute. The other thing you look for is, of course, the people you'll be working with. That's really very important. And of course, you do your due diligence looking at the bones of the business itself, the sustainability, the reputation. But uh, primarily get the most joy out of the subject matter, just trying to make a difference wherever it is. And I think infrastructure and quality of life is a great example, creating um, a better Australia for, you know, communities and people everywhere and more efficient and more productive, but giving people a greater quality of life. That's fantastic opportunity, but also, you know, the opportunity to work with great people who, who've got extraordinary expertise and who are really committed to what they do. When you look at a company for its culture, what are you looking for specifically and how, how can you tell if an organisation actually has a great culture? It, it's a really good question because as a prospective 
director, you can only do your research, but it's actually the people who are mostly indicative of it. I mean, most organisations now have a value statement on their website and um, it's really interesting to discover as you explore the possibility of being on a board which organisations really take the values seriously and which ones just see them as something that's a bit of wallpaper on their on their website. And I've been really lucky of late to join a construction company board and the values that that company espouses are living and breathing every day and uh, they make decisions based on the, the outcomes align with the values of the company. So it's um, it's really, it's very interesting to look at uh, how companies, how people actually operate in an environment. And you only get that, you don't get it on day one, of course. But uh, the more you talk to people in the organisation, the deeper you go, the more you see whether the values are real or whether they're uh, just, you know, a box ticking exercise. Good boards are reliant on great personal relationships around the table and being able to have an argument in a respectful way. Have you felt that your skills in that space have to be even stronger compared to being an executive team or running your own business or being an employee? Yeah. I mean, the concept of a board and collegiate decision-making decision wherever possible is, uh, is an unusual one. It, of course, you need what they call cognitive diversity around a board table. Um, you actually want very different people contributing to a discussion. And so the worst thing is if everybody's friends and, you know, just doesn't want to challenge each other and just actually doesn't take advantage of the background uh, that each one brings to the table. So, you know, a lot of it boils down to the skill and expertise of the chair in bringing out those different perspectives and giving everybody a chance to, uh, to talk. But the last thing you want is groupthink. The last thing you want is everybody just shrugging and listening to one person and then just nodding and saying, yeah, we agree entirely, no matter what the, what the subject matter is. You really do have to um, make sure that everybody contributes and everybody can bring their various backgrounds and experience and mindset to an issue. I guess that's what I wanted to explore with you today is how you give advice in various different circumstances, everything from one-on-one to friends and I know you are at the end of the phone to some very high profile and important and big leaders in this country, how you give advice to them and how you give advice to a board that doesn't want to hear about gender diversity or whatever whatever issue you think it needs to hear about. Yeah, it's a really good question. And I mean, there've been times when you just know what the right answer is because you've thought about it deeply, you really understand the context, you understand the dynamics, you understand the depth. But there are other times when you can get too close and you actually can't see the forest for the trees. That particularly happens with individuals. I've given some really bad advice to some friends who are facing, you know, difficult situations in their workplace or wherever because I'm too close to them. And if they're being treated badly in a workplace being performance managed or, you know, facing some redundancy or whatever, you know, I get kind of outraged on their behalf and I can... Uh, and you're demanding they go in and do exactly, this and do that. and get your legal <laughs> advice, you know, and, and then, you know, what you've got to do when you feel like that is, of course, step back and just be much more dispassionate and much more ob objective about things. 
Um, so understanding the context is really, really important. But giving advice to friends and giving advice in workplaces to colleagues, you've really got to understand their full context as well, don't you? Because you can give feedback to people who work for you, for instance, and just not really be empathetic enough to their lives and how they're thinking and what they're confronting in their daily life. You can be, I mean, I've I've been guilty of this, perhaps not so much of late because I've learned a bit, but, you know, just being a little bit too judgmental and a little bit too definite about the way things should be without really taking into account the, the persons, the recipient of the feedback and their advice and their, and their, their own um, concerns and their own feelings of inadequacy or whatever. You've really got to be very careful about that. But, you know, frank and fearless advice is, is important. It's always getting that balance, I think, between, you know, if you've got a really clear, well-thought-through pathway that you think you want to share with someone, you know, make sure that they understand that this is your opinion and it's based on, you know, some solid thinking, maybe some solid research and some solid understanding of the context um, without getting too emotionally involved. I think that's the interesting thing about advice is stripping out the emotion and feeling like you as an individual has been rejected versus your advice being rejected, which is quite different. Yeah, oh, it, it is. And, and people who ask for your advice, I mean, it's very flattering in many ways, isn't it? And it's obviously mostly coming from a position of trust. And you want to maintain the trust. It's so important, isn't it? And yet you want to be honest. Mm. And sometimes that's the hardest bit being really honest with people about, you know, when they discuss their career aspirations with you. Someone the other day was talking to me about the mode of feedback that says, yes, and. It's never yes, but, because that immediately demeans, you know, the, the, the person that you're giving advice to or demeans their, their thought process. But the yes, and is really important to being honest, I think. Um, you hear what someone has said, you hear their position, you hear what their, for argument's sake, career aspiration is, you think it's totally unrealistic, of course, but you might, you know, temper that by saying, yes, I hear what you say, and you ought to perhaps give this some thought as well, rather than just being completely blunt and saying, I just don't think that's realistic. It depends on the nature of the relationship. Are you, are you blunt? I can be. Yeah, yeah, I can be. It depends on the nature of the relationship entirely. Depends and is that, on, has that served you well, though? It depends. Depends mm. on the context. Depends on the nature of the, of the person you're talking to. It depends on what they're asking and why they're asking. I don't think there's a, there's a, a rule about that. But, but I do think you need to try and be honest with people, but be diplomatic as you can. And it's a real tension, isn't it? The thing I find difficult in this stuff is that when you're the leader and you lead with a certain style your colleagues and your team work out what cranky means for you. Let me use Anna Wintour as an example. She's always accused of being, you know, a pretty terrible boss and there's a whole documentary. And if you watch that documentary, she almost says nothing, ever. She just raises an eyebrow and walks out. And her entire team knows that that is an absolute disaster. But to the uninitiated, it doesn't seem particularly mean, nasty, or improper. So I find it interesting because people just 
gauge, they just adjust <laughs> just their expectations of you because they know a raised, raised eyebrow from you is the same as a screaming match. Yeah, and it's important that people know you, isn't it? Yes. To be able to anticipate that. So it I, is. I think it is in a workplace particularly where you're giving feedback, advice, whatever it is, you do need to let people in to yourself and your situation. You know, I talked earlier about understanding people's situations and complexities in their lives and their backgrounds before you really can understand how they're going to receive advice and what sort of advice is best for them. But you've got to let people into your life too so they know where you're coming from and they they understand the best way to get a good response out of you as well. And I think, yeah, sometimes people can understand, you know, that you are going to be very blunt with them and they kind of gird themselves <laughs> for that. But that's usually based on, you know, quite a, a strong and long and deep relationship. You can be blunt in those circumstances, I think. But it's much harder when you the relationship isn't there. What sort of leader are you? God, that's really for other people to, no. <laughs> to judge. I you think, and <laughs> Ambassador Caroline Kennedy. She told me that recently. Did she really? Absolutely. Oh, well. She was know. not going to answer that question yeah. no matter how much I tried to goad her into it. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I really can't assess myself. But, but I know when I used to be in the business of giving advice all the time, particularly to leaders of organisations, it was all about trust and credibility. It was all about this kind of technology almost of trust and credibility, how you foster it, how you earn it. And, you know, one of the key ingredients of being seen as a trustworthy and credible leader is competence. I mean, that's pretty basic. You've actually got to be seen to be a person who can do their job properly. But there are other things too, you know, like uh, accepting other people's decisions and not arguing the toss constantly. Humility is probably the number one ingredient of leadership as I see it, uh, and that's all bound up with trust and credibility. It doesn't mean you don't have, have a forthright manner because you can, of course, but it's got to be based in competence. It's got to be staking out that sort of middle ground, not constantly positioning yourself as the best, uh, the leader, the, you know, the most um, admired. If anything bad happens... You're not you're not reduced to the second best or the third best. You go right back to the to the worst, <laughs> because that self esteem maximisation that we all have a tendency to do in business doesn't serve you well because things do go wrong in business all the time, and so to position yourself as you know the numero uno all the time doesn't serve you well. We used to call it staking out that middle ground, trying to be, you know, in that top set, working really hard towards it that's a much better way to position yourself and your organisation than um, being high, wide and handsome and chest-thumping all the time. So they're the sort of leaders that I look for and they're the sort of leaders that I admire. You would have worked with leaders and explained that to them. Do you, do you have success? Like, can you actually talk an alpha male, sorry to all the men listening, an alpha male leader into kind of tempering that? Because we're in Sydney. It's a competitive city in a competitive part of the world so that you know, a lot of men have to kind of, you know, have a bit of that to get there in the first place. Yeah, exactly. You know, and we say that in the sporting world, of course, too, don't we, that you really do need that sort of killer instinct and you really do want to be the best. But 
I think people understand it. When you talk to them about it, they understand it rationally and they understand it as a corporate positioning tool, but it's, it is very difficult to apply it always to, you, to yourself. There were plenty of women who are in the same boat too who are, have had to really feel as though they have to assert themselves doubly, much harder than, than men do to get to the top. And there are some, you know, fantastic women leading big organisations now, much, uh, much to my joy. Um, Amazing, right? I, you yeah. Know, Vicky Brady, Vanessa Hudson, you know, yeah. and we're seeing two women being considered to be the CEO of Qantas. You know, would you have thought in your lifetime that there would be two women considered to be the CEO of Qantas? No way. No, it's, it's absolutely remarkable, you know. Just, times. I mean, I was just saying the other day that it's in my lifetime that when women got married, they had to resign from the public sector. I can reach out and touch that in my life. You know, so, yeah, we've come a, a really long way. There's always more to do, of course, but, um, no, it's fantastic to see these, these women succeeding in these large and complex organisations. Let's talk about um, female leadership then. You know, I made a show a minute ago of talking about alpha males. What do you see are the challenges for women uh, who are on their ascendancy leading in this country, either in the public or the private sector? Well, I think, in, in, look, in some ways, there's such a, an awareness of the need to promote women and really treat women with, with respect and shed that unconscious bias that, you know, in some workplaces, not all, you're actually in a better position than anyone to succeed, you know, provided you can demonstrate your worth. When I look back on my life as a director, going back those 30 years, I've got absolutely no doubt that I benefited enormously from the fact that people were actively looking for women to go on, on boards. You like, of course, to think that you were meritorious and, you know, you fulfilled the role as well as anyone else. But there's no doubt that, you know, I think women are actively being sought because they, um, they just bring such a different perspective to organisations. It's really interesting, of course, to see women still being brought in to mop up messes in, in companies when something goes wrong. There's a celebrated uh, professional services firm that's having uh, that uh, experience uh, as we speak. And, of course, it's the woman who's been put in as the acting chief executive because somehow women are seen to just enhance a reputation and are being seen to have more trust and credibility than sometimes their male counterparts. So I think it's I think the environment is really good for women who who want to advance and of course you've got to work hard and you've got to earn your spurs and you've got to demonstrate that you can do the do the job but um, there will still you know depending on the on the industry there'll still always be tremendous obstacles though I do a lot of work in the construction industry which has the worst statistics for women's participation in fact the gender pay gap is widening in construction. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's really difficult. We've got 88% guys in an industry for women to, to flourish. And there are a host of cultural issues that I could talk from now to Christmas about. But it's also that, you know, you can't be what you can't see. If you can't identify with the upper echelons, with the leadership of an organisation, well, you're going to vote with your, with your feet. And that's certainly happening in the construction industry. Tell me if you're in a board or a situation where you feel like you are directly disadvantaged by your gender. How do you tackle that? 
problem today? Well, I think today you tackle it in a different way to the way, well, we didn't tackle it. When we, no, when we were, ignored it. When we were growing mm. up, we just thought that just came with the territory and, you know. But I mean, lucky to be there. Exactly, lucky mm. to be there and you just, you know, you know, I mean, when I was a lawyer and a journalist, they were male, very male-dominated fields in those days uh, and you just copped it, really. But nowadays, I think... Um, I think you've got to be you've got to be assertive, but within reason too. You know, it's always human relationships are tricky, aren't they? Mm. And you've, uh, I think, you know, performance will always win the day if you if you perform, then you get the credibility and the and the, and the trust and the respect. But if you really feel that you're being disadvantaged, you've just got to have an honest conversation, but have a real basis on which to discuss it, and not just necessarily giving the appearance that you're just saying that to try and advance advance yourself with no real real reason. You've got to have some be clear about some what evidence. criticism is. Yeah, yeah. and be yep. yeah, and be clear and say, you know, quote an instance and and really talk about it in very reasoned terms. And sometimes that can make an impact, sometimes it won't. You've just got to persevere with that, I think. What skills are boards looking for today? Well, very different skills from you know, 30 years ago in some ways because um, uh, nowadays you, particularly with environmental and social and governance being important qualifications for companies, important focuses for companies, it is people who have worked in corporate affairs and marketing and community engagement and uh, human resources who are much more valued as prospective directors than the usual many years ago. You had to really be a lawyer, an accountant, or have worked in very senior, you know, preferably CEO role. You see the field broadening much more. It's not only the skills and disciplines like that, it's also the cultural mix. You know, everybody's looking, of course, for First Nations people to be represented on their boards. Everybody's looking now for people from different community backgrounds and, and all sorts of... Uh, We're looking for so many qualities in employees now, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's not just, it's just not when a colour or gender, it's actually the neurodiverse and the dis- disability and... Absolutely. It's a much more complex uh, role to put executive teams or teams together because we, we know that we'll be a more successful operation if well, we have exactly. that around the table. Well, you know, we need to represent the communities who are putting their faith in us, either as suppliers of goods and services to them or as members of communities, um, you know, who are conducting their business in, you know, whatever part of the world it is. So that cognitive diversity is not only important, but it is that representation of, um, not that you come to a director role representing a particular constituency, you don't. You need to contribute as a director in a 360-degree fashion, but it is bringing that uh, that wealth of experience to the, to the board table that... Uh, that enhances, I mean, we know there's plenty of research saying better performing boards have better diversity. There's a recent example in the paper, which I'm sure you're aware of, but I don't want to go about into the particular of the sector. But I do hear from older male board members who have had it stitched up, they've had all the jobs, saying that they lament that there is actually no insert sector, but let's say business experience. They've not built a business, been a CEO. They've got great experience as a diverse member. They may have spent time as HR. They may have spent time in 
tech, but actually they've never actually built a business. Are you seeing a bit of that around board tables and a bit of frustration around the makeup? You always see that, but I think good boards will have someone who's at least one person who's built a business, been a CEO, been a managing director, Mm. been a COO, built a startup. You know, depending on the nature of the of the board, you will see that expertise around a table. But you also need more. You do need these other perspectives that are that you'll bring to the table. And hopefully, modern CEOs, former CEOs who join boards or current CEOs who are on boards, they also bring that broader perspective from having managed a much more complex organisation in a contemporary sense. You know, it, it used to be much easier command and control years and years ago, but um, but now the complexity of stakeholders, the complexity of compliance, the complexity of creating a good culture based on good values, you hope that most CEOs in a board will bring all of that. But nonetheless, you know, specialists are important as well, depending on the nature of the, of the business. Let's talk about footy. Sure. How's it going? Well, you know, never a dull <laughs> moment. Um, but the game is in really good shape. You know, there are a million issues a day in football, of course. Not all of them are good ones. Some are. But um, if you're just looking at the state of the game and the health of the game, uh, it's a tremendously exciting season and uh, we're really looking forward to uh, to a great final season. Have you always been a mad football fan? We're talking AFL, if anyone's wondering. Yeah, well, I grew up with it, really. My, my dad was president of North Melbourne and his father before him and I had brothers who worked down there, so very much... In the DNA, but then when I moved to Sydney, I became involved with footy up here and was lucky enough to be one of the people who converted uh, the idea of having a team in the west of Sydney to um, to the Giants. Um, so I was there when we picked the colours and picked the team and we had all these 17-year-old boys living at Breakfast Creek um, who needed to be taught how to drive and how to cook. And um, Brilliant. It's been, a, yeah, it's been, I, I still kind of pinch myself when I go to the Giants games as I quite often do, and see people who are passionately, uh, you know, painting their faces orange and, and charcoal <laughs> when it all just seemed like, an well, it was just an idea. It was creating something out of pretty well thin air 12 years ago, nearly 12 years ago. That's been one of the great experiences of my life, I think, just um, helping or playing a very small role in, in helping that. And then, of course, um, the advent of AFLW has been a transformative thing for the whole code and I was lucky enough to be asked to join the AFL Commission just before the first AFLW season. So that's been just a joy to see that um, that develop too. That is quite a board that you're on, the AFL Commission. It is, yep, it sure is. <laughs> My last question is, you've got a tattoo on your arm. What does it say? Can you share it with us? Yeah, I can. It's, um, it's a line from a Nirvana song. It says, though the sun is gone, I have a light. Uh, our son, who was 19, 12 years ago, died in an accident and he had that tattooed on his um, on his ankle. And so after that, my daughter and I, we uh, decided we would repeat it on, uh, on ourselves. So uh, I don't need to look at it to remember Joe, but I, um, I just have it there. Just a waste to be, um, just a glance down and in the middle of a board meeting, I'll just sometimes think, yep, Joe's there somewhere looking over us. Did that ex- life experience impact the way you related and led in any way? Uh, yeah, I think it did. I think it. what you realise about people is that everybody has a story. Every, we're all the walking wounded in one way or another. It's very easy not to 
understand that most people have something going on in their lives or have had something going in their on in their lives that is deeply difficult, sometimes traumatic, sometimes, you know, just a, an incredible stress and strain on their themselves and on their family life, uh, whether it's, you know, a terrible illness, just the, the rigours of caring for aged parents, as many of us now do, kids who are ill, you know, we all need to just stop and think about that a lot more than we probably do, that uh, everybody has a story, everybody has a stress, everybody has difficulties, and uh, we can't treat people as though they're all the same and all perfectly resilient and fine, particularly when they're in the workplace, which is the easy tendency, isn't it, to just think everyone's there turning up to work to do the job. I think being really mindful of people's mental health and really creating workplaces that are people-centric, that are about the people, mean that they're better workplaces and people get a lot more um, support but also much more satisfaction out of working in workplaces that treat them as people. Gabrielle Trainer, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, it's been a pleasure. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. Series producer is Holly Mitchell and audio imaging by Nat Marshall. 